following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. So um, being a youth pastor, I, uh, of course, one of the, my favorite topics and favorite types of stories to tell are poop stories, and so I apologize for um, some of the, the children in the room or parents who feel like this is inappropriate, especially from the pulpit, but I was trying to think of the past few weeks we've been talking about these ways of describing the broken nature of our world and what sin is and does and how it has affected us and affected the rest of creation, and of course my mind went to poop. And so um, back in 2016, um, when Connie and my lives were changed forever. We have had our, uh, our first child, our son Grayson. Uh, his birthday is actually coming up in about a week and a half. And in 2016, after he was born, we brought him home. And these are some pictures of him from when he was so brand new. And um, I think he's less than a week old in these, in these shots. And actually, you know, um, when we brought him home finally from the hospital, it was exciting and scary all at the same time. And I was trying to do my best to be like, you know, a 21st century dad. So like not sitting around like waiting for my wife to do everything and, and trying to be active and, and help change diapers and feed him and, and helping, you know, my wife get some time to rest and, and all this stuff. And so I remember about a week after we brought him home, he was, yeah, like maybe like 10 days old, um, that one night he woke up at about three in the morning crying and he had a dirty diaper and he needed to be fed and so I woke up and um and Connie woke up but I, I pulled him out of his crib and put him I laid him on our bed to change his diaper and as soon as I opened up his diaper um I had this explosion of poop <laughs> that came out and those of you guys who are parents I'm sure you have experience with these you know sometimes you literally can just hear like, you could be standing near them, and you just hear that they had pooped, right? And it was one of those, except that his diaper was off. And, um, and so I had taken the diaper off already, was getting ready to wipe, and it just sprayed everywhere. Like, it was so disgusting. <laughs> Again, I apologize. Like, you have to hear this first thing in the morning on Sunday. But um, as soon as that happened, I was standing there holding his legs like this, sprayed, and... Um, some of it got on my face, but not in my mouth, thankfully. I had my mouth closed. And I stood there, and then a couple of seconds later, I, like, started to just chuckle. <laughs> I was like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe that this just happened. And Connie, in that moment of me pausing, she was, like, looking at me, like, wondering, like, what's he going to do? <laughs> you know, like, is he going to be mad? Is he going to laugh? Like, what's, what's happening here? And the reason why I think of this story when I'm trying to picture what sin and transgression and iniquity is like is because I think the picture that we've been trying to paint about what sin has done to us and to our world is that it has, like, wrecked everything, right? Like, we, like I said, I, I had him on our, on, our, on our bed, so it was on our sheets. They had to be removed and washed. Like, it was in front of our patio door in our bedroom, and so the curtains that were there needed to be taken off and washed. The carpet needed to be cleaned. Like, he needed to be given, like, a semi-bath, and it was just a mess everywhere. And I think, honestly, the biblical picture of what sin has done is not this neat and tidy, like, you're messed up, and so you need a little bit of fixing, 
but it's like this explosion of poop that has wrecked havoc everywhere. So if I wanted to give a brief recap of, of uh, what we've talked about the past few weeks, remember that sin or kata is, it was defined as missing the mark. The mark being loving God and loving our neighbors and fulfilling our God-given purpose as his image bearers, his co-rulers over all of creation, so that we were supposed to rule over it with sacrificial love and care the way that God rules over us. In Luke 18, when the rich young ruler asks Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept since my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And this rich young ruler may have been keeping those commandments that were written in the Ten Commandments, right? But he was still missing the mark. He was still living in sin because he wasn't doing it out of love for others or for God. The way that he posed the question told it all, like, what must I do so that I can inherit eternal life? And there's no regard for God or others in it. And that's our sin, right? It's this, it's this uh, failure to be truly human the way that God is, has intended. And then iniquity, the word avon is, is this bentness or crookedness, and it helps to describe the ways that our individual failures affect our communities and our families. It's that explosion part, right? It's that it, everything has gotten wrecked and how our society's bentness affects our perception of what's right and wrong and how our, our, our right and wrong affects our society's perceptions. And this common refrain throughout the Old Testament, especially in the book of Judges, is that every man did whatever he thought was fit according to what he thought was right and good, rather than listen to what God said was right and good. And instead of living according to God's purposes, they went in whatever direction that they wanted. They were bent and crooked. And likewise, we also are still bent and crooked, individually and collectively. And transgression, last week when Pastor Steve preached on the theme of transgression, pesha, is breaking trust with somebody of betraying someone, and we're all transgressors. We all break trust with God, with one another, and with all of creation. Our sins and our failures damage our relationships with one another. They create these rifts and these breaks, these fractures in our society, in our families, in our friendships, in our churches. And we see this clearly throughout Scripture from the very beginning when at the first sin that Adam blames his wife Eve, and Eve blames a serpent, in their children when Cain kills his own brother Abel, when Joseph's brothers plot to kill him and then they end up selling him off into slavery, when King David commits adultery with Bathsheba and then kills her husband Uriah, when Jonah hates the Ninevites so much that he despises God's mercy towards them. The message of almost all the prophets to Israel and Judah in the Old Testament is that they failed to care for those in greatest need among them. The Jews and the Romans together in the New Testament crucify the Son of God. And he was betrayed by one of his closest disciples, these 12 men that he had spent the last three years ministering with and to. And almost every one of the epistles in the New Testament deal with some sort of division or relational conflict within the church. And we honestly don't even need the Bible to, to teach us about transgression because we live it every day. It's in our news all the time. We hear about these mass shootings, 
the racial injustices and the violence, military coup d'etats and broken marriages and widening wealth gaps, skyrocketing divorce rates and cyberbullying that is causing this pandemic of, of loneliness and of depression. We break trust with one another all the time when we fail to treat one another with dignity that human beings deserve. So through this extended exploration of what this brokenness in our world has meant and what it is, we can see that this problem within each one of us spills over, and as we said, it affects our relationships, our communities, our whole world. If our God-given purpose is to love him and to love our neighbors and to rule over creation on his behalf with a sacrificial love and care that God rules over us with, then surely we are all missing that mark. We are failing so, so deeply. So today we're talking about one of the ways that God resolves this problem of sin in our world, which was through this idea of atoning sacrifices. Now, atonement is another one of these words, I think, in the introduction or in the, in the Bible Project videos for the last three, uh, three weeks. You know, they talked about how, like, sin, iniquity, transgression are not, like, normal everyday words that we use in, in normal conversation, that they're kind of like church words, right? And I think atonement is another one of these words that we often hear in church but don't really use that often outside of it. And so theologically loaded— now, there's a lot of things that atonement can entail. For our purpose today, I really want us to focus on two of the ways that we can understand atonement. So the first way is that atonement actually comes from a Middle English word or phrase that's at-one-ment. Okay? Atonement literally is from at-one-ment. We can think of it as reconciliation or restoration of a broken relationship. And in Hebrew, the word for atonement comes from this uh, root that is um, kippur or kafar, and um, it means to cover. Okay, so an atoning sacrifice, we can say, is a sacrifice that covers over, or more specifically, that it's a sacrifice that covers over the things that cause uh, fractures in a relationship so that reconciliation is possible, right? So we're kind of, it's like both of these ideas of reconciliation and covering put together and let's read, actually, uh, from the beginning of Leviticus so we can see how Scripture, especially throughout the book of Leviticus, ties this idea of sacrifice with atonement. So in Leviticus 1, verses 1 through 4, it says, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If your offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And we're not going to dig super deeply into this text, but this is actually just one example. If you read through the book of Leviticus, like, literally this pattern just comes up over and over and over again. There are sacrifices that the people of Israel are called to make in particular instances for particular reasons, and God keeps on saying to them over and over and over again that somehow that these sacrifices are linked to atonement. And another reason why we can have confidence that we're on the right track with understanding um, atonement in this way is because the word for offering— or sacrifice, as we're, as we're talking about it today, is korban, 
which means um, to draw near. It comes from the same root as, as drawing near somebody or approaching somebody. Okay? So offerings and sacrifices were meant to bring people near to God. In the book of Leviticus, the book that is about this sacrificial law, the word atonement occurs 49 times, and only 53 times throughout the rest of the Old Testament, and a lot of those 53 times are also in the same sort of context of sacrifices and atonement. So we can define atoning sacrifices as sacrifices that cover our debt, namely our sin, our failure to live as humans were created and purpose to live, and they cover our debt so that for the purpose of reconciliation and restoration of our relationship with God. Now, I know that a lot of what we just said in the last five minutes is like very technical, a lot of Hebrew and all these other things thrown in there, and I probably lost a few of you along the way. So let me try to paint a picture for you. Um, last week, one of our sixth grade girls, who I'm not going to name because I didn't ask her if it was okay for me to share this, so just one of our girls in our, in our youth group, uh, shared that if someone were to betray her to break her trust, to transgress against her, that the way to restore her trust is food. <laughs> right? It's just food. And um, you're laughing because you agree. <laughs> so she's like, if you just buy her food, then she's good. Right? Like, you're good, I'm good, all great, we're, we're, we're fine. So buying her food, though, doesn't undo the wrong that you've done to her. Okay? But um, that wrong is no longer definitive of your relationship with her anymore, right? That it's no longer going to be about, like, what you did wrong, but now food is defining your relationship with her, and food is good. And so you're good, right? And so buying her food would cover over the past wrong and would serve the purpose of reconciling your relationship with her. And that would be the beginning of rebuilding the trust, and that's what atoning sacrifices did. So God's response to our sin and the brokenness, the massive explosive poop that we let out into the world, is that he institutes this system of sacrificial offerings, or these atoning sacrifices. And the fact that God did this shows us that he is a God who seeks a way to be reconciled with his people. It's a gracious provision, an act of his loving kindness toward his people. He is ultimately concerned with how to draw us near to him again when we have done these things that have caused a rift, a fracture in our relationship with him and with one another. He's telling his people that when you fail, this is how we can make it right again. And the ideal, as it said in the video, was that the people, as they were experiencing this love and grace of God through these atoning sacrifices, that they would become people of love and grace too. Because actually, the sacrifices in and of themselves weren't enough, weren't sufficient to fully restore the relationship. It was just the beginning. It was like the first step. It was, it was a, a, like a, a deposit for that to be able to happen. So the sacrifice really represented for your relationship, like what it represented for your relationship mattered much more than the literal sacrifice, right? It wasn't like if you did this, then everything was all of a sudden good and that nothing ever would go wrong again, but that it was that first step. And the sacrifices were meant to be uh, relational, not transactional, right? You're not buying a relationship with God again, 
But it's meant to be like, okay, God, I'm committing with you to start this over, right? The point of the sacrifice is what to be this, this great reset, right? This uh, restoration so that the people could recommit their covenant with God. It was God giving his people a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. And us in giving those sacrifices saying that we wanted that new chance. Last week in Catalyst, as we were talking about transgression, these broken relationships, broken trust in relationships, we talked about how there's certain ways that both the transgressor, like the person who has done the wrong and the person who was transgressed against, the person who, who was wronged, that both can actually do something or have a particular attitude or a view that can block real restoration, reconciliation. And on the part of the transgressor, the person who did the wrong, a refusal to admit guilt or a uh, denial or a refusal to work to rebuild the trust, that that would make reconciliation, restoration pretty much impossible. But on the part of the person who was transgressed, a refusal to forgive, a refusal to take the risk of being hurt again, and um, in order for that trust to be restored, can also uh, eliminate the possibility of real restoration and reconciliation. And so for God, by giving his people of Israel this system of sacrifices, God was essentially saying to them that no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've run from me, no matter how many times you have run away or deserted me, no matter where you've been, that there is always going to be a way back. In 1 John 1, 9, John writes, If we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As the one whose trust was broken, God is always faithful to forgive and to restore if we're willing to do our part in this. He's never going to be the one to give up on us, to write us off. And I wonder if there are some people here today that need a fresh reminder of this truth. Some of us that need to be reminded that there are actually no limitations in how many times we can offer sacrifice. No, matter, no limitations in how often we can come into the temple to make things right with God again. When Jesus is asked in Matthew chapter 18 how many times you should forgive your brother, he replies not just seven times, but 77 times. He's telling us that there's never going to be a limit, right? The 77 is not meant to be like this is the upper bound, but that you should always forgive because that's how God forgives us. He's always open to reconciliation and restoration. And even when you run out of animals in your flock, God makes provisions. Like we can imagine like, well, if I have to bring sacrifice, like what if I don't have enough? What if I don't have this animal? It's too hard for me to bring that. And God makes provision for his people. If we look at Leviticus chapter 5, he says that you're supposed to bring a lamb, but if you cannot afford a lamb, then you can bring two turtle doves or two pigeons. And the priest will make atonement for you the same way as if you had brought the lambs. And then he says even further, like, if you can't afford the two turtle doves or the two pigeons, then you just bring an offering of a flower, right, of grain. 
And that can even make atonement for you. God is not sitting here saying like, no, this is what you owe me. You have to pay this price or else you cannot come. But he's saying, okay, I'm going to work with you. Whatever we can do to make this right again, to restore, to reconcile, that's what I'm for. In Psalm 51, 17, King David writes, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. When we come to our Lord seeking restoration and atonement, then our Father, just as the Father did for the prodigal, he runs to us with open arms. He doesn't turn us away. He doesn't have a limit that he runs to forgive and to restore. He runs. And even after giving us this sacrificial system, he doesn't say, look, I gave you the rules, so go and follow them or else I'm done doing my part. He runs. He doesn't sit back and wait for us now to make the first move. He's not sitting in our house at night with his arms crossed, waiting to see when we're going to come back and make it right. He runs. When we look at the mindset of the younger son in that parable of the prodigal son, he is so ready for his father to exact a punishment on him, for him to never be able to restore fully the relationship to what it was, that he would settle for being treated like a servant rather than a son. And he has his whole apology speech ready. And then the father runs. It reminds me a lot of what happened with Jacob and Esau too when Jacob was preparing to meet his brother Esau who he had betrayed and, and deceived and run away from for years and years and years and got married, had kids and made a life of his own and he's finally coming back and he sees Esau approaching him. And he sends all these gifts saying, I want to try to make him better and, and not have him be angry with me anymore because the last, he saw Esau, last time he saw Esau, Esau was ready to kill him. And he says, I need to somehow make this right. So he sends all these offerings. And when he sees him coming, he's like, oh my gosh, I have to split my family up. And you guys go over here, you guys over here. So he can only kill half of us. And he's so convinced that the relationship was, was beyond reconciliation. But Esau runs. In Genesis 33, he ran to meet Jacob and he embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him and they wept. And Jacob, when seeing his brother embrace him, he says, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. Jacob says that he sees the face of God in his brother's face that day. And we can often misunderstand God's heart this way and imagine that these sacrificial laws are meant somehow to mark a boundary, to separate us from God and saying, you'd better make those steps and bring those sacrifices or else we can't be friends. But remember, the sacrifice, the offerings, korban, they were meant as a means to draw us near. We see them as rules to follow, as not as the grace to God's people that they are. God runs. Most of us have experienced this terrible feeling of knowing that we have badly wronged someone else and wishing that we hadn't, but knowing that if the other, like not knowing if the other person will ever accept us again. 
We know the doubts of whether we've damaged the relationship beyond repair. We know the feeling of knowing that it's our fault. It's because of what we've done that that brokenness, that fracture exists. And it's not up to us anymore whether or not we're going to be reconciled. It's in the other person's court. The helplessness in that relationship of being at the mercy of the other, we know that this is our situation with God. That we're the transgressors. He's the one who's been transgressed. But God runs. And when Jesus came and he died on the cross and he became the atoning sacrifice for us, Scripture tells us that he willingly offered up his own body to make a way for us to draw near to God again. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, he writes, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. God ran in Christ. In 1 John 4, 10, again, he writes, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And God ran. In Romans 5, verse 6 through 8, he says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us and he ran to us. In 1 Peter 3.18, Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God to draw us near. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. God runs to his people. The sacrifices were meant to draw his people near, to bring real restoration to the relationship that we had so badly marred. Do you see in the provision of these atoning sacrifices the love of God for his people Israel? Do you see in the death on the cross for our reconciliation with him, Christ's love for the church? Do you see on this Palm Sunday that while those who waved those palm branches as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, they believed that he was a Davidic king who would come and save them by freeing them from Roman rule. But we today on this side of the cross have so much more reason to hail and give honor and glory to this king Who runs to be reconciled with his rebellious people, to the people that have broken his heart over and over again? This church is our faithful and loving and gracious and powerful king. It only seems fitting. that in a message that was begun with a poop story that I would end with a pee story, right? And um, as I was thinking about whether or not to share this today, um, I have to apologize to my son, Grayson, because one day he's going to resent that he was a pastor's son because (laughs) stories about him are told. But um, when Grayson was about three, there was one day when I was cleaning up our bathroom. This is after he had been potty trained for a while, and he actually made potty training really easy. We were super blessed and, and thankful that it was such an easy process with him. But as I was cleaning the bathroom one day, I realized 
that there was a lot more pee on the ground than there ought to have been. <laughs> and I'm not just talking about like he had like little spills here and there. Like he literally had peed into a corner in our bathroom. And it's a bathroom that Kanye and I don't really use that often because we usually need to use the bathroom in our room. And this is the hallway bathroom. And I was like, this is disgusting. <laughs> and uh, of course, I did what any good parent would do. And I had to Google and see if this was normal. And if I found comfort in knowing that it kind of is, right? That he wasn't the only one. And um, there are lots of theories about why little boys will do something so disgusting. And some of them are a little bit more sophisticated than just that they're little boys, right? <laughs> well, the first time that he did this, I felt this incessant need inside of me to communicate to him absolutely clearly that he cannot do this again, that this is wrong, it's gross, and that he should never, ever let this thought even cross my mind again. And so I actually got really, really angry. It's a, it was not a, a good parenting moment for me. But let me tell you that the second time, I actually caught him in the act. I just happened to be passing by. I think he forgot that the, forgot that the door, door was open. And as soon as I saw that out of the corner of my eye, I just flipped the lid and I was like yelling and so angry. It was not a good night. But then there was a third time. <laughs> And this time, I didn't catch him in the act. I just had this inkling as I was cleaning the bathroom again, and I saw, I was like, this looks like it's a little bit familiar. Not as bad as it was the first time, but still, it looks like somebody did something naughty here. And I was about to clean this bathroom, and I saw it. And then I went to Grayson. I said, Grayson, did you pee on the bathroom floor again? And he said, no, no, I didn't. I said okay, it kind of looks like you did. I really just want you to be honest with me. Tell me the truth. Did you do it or not? And I was like kind of cool still because I wasn't even sure yet at this point whether or not he had done it. And it just looked suspicious. I hadn't cleaned it up yet. It looked suspicious. I went to go talk to him, confront him. And I kept on pressing him. And I told him like, even if you did, I'm not going to get that angry. And probably based on what happened the last time, he wasn't really convinced. <laughs> he was like, no, I know, I know what happens when you find out. And so he denied it, denied it, denied it, and I had this feeling that he was lying to me. But he was saying, I didn't. I didn't do it today. I know that I did it a long time ago, but I didn't. I didn't do it today. Believe me. And so I told him, okay, Grayson, if you tell me that you didn't do it, I'm going to believe you. Okay? If you tell me that you didn't do it, I'm going to take you at your word, and fine, you didn't do it. So I walked out. I went to go clean the bathroom. And as I was wiping it up, I was like, nope, this is definitely peeing on the ground. <laughs> and so I went back to him. And somehow, uh, by the grace of God, I was able to, to, for the most part, keep my cool. And by this third time through, um, I had realized that, yes, it really, really made me so angry that I had to clean up this mess. And I felt like it was so disgusting. And it was like, like Pastor Lester, when he was talking about body training Joseph, it was like, it felt like a slap to the face, right? But this is even worse. It's not an accident. Like, you're literally just choosing to do this. And you know how much it, it makes me angry. You know the fracture, the, the, the destruction that it causes to our relationship. You know what I, how I'm going to respond, and you still chose to do it. It's all very hard to deal with. 
But in my own mind, in my processing, I had to think about, like, is it worth it for me to break my relationship with my son over this? Of course not, right? Did I want him to think that I hated him and that I thought that he was a disgusting human being? Of course not. Did I want him to be afraid of me and afraid especially to admit mistakes to me and to be willing to admit when he's done something wrong? Of course not. In other words, I realized that restoring the relationship between me and my son mattered so much more than just communicating the wrongness of what he had done or just communicating the rules of our, of our family. Not that those are not important, but they're not as important as me being able to restore that relationship with him. And my outbursts of anger the first two times was, were actually a misguided uh, expression of the personal hurt that I was feeling, the, the offense that I took to what he did, feeling like he knew what he was doing and he broke our relationship anyway. So this third time, when I realized that he was lying to me, that he had done it, again, um, I told him that night, I sat down with him, didn't yell, and I had a conversation with him and I said, Grayson, it really hurts me when you do this. You know that I have to clean that up, right? You saw me cleaning it the last two times, didn't you? I said, are you going to clean this? Am I going to make you clean this up? He said, no. Am I going to have to clean it up? Yeah. And, And when I said that to him, I said, Grayson, I want you to understand how much it hurts me that you do this. I saw these tears start welling up in his five-year-old or four-year-old eyes, right? And as I was sharing, much more than when I was blowing up at him in anger, I felt like he actually understood how much it upset me that he did that. And then at the end of all of it, I think he was feeling sorry about it. He was feeling guilty and and was afraid of, like, okay, what's going to come next? And even though in my mind there was still some anger and some frustration, I just wrapped my arms around him. I held him tight. I told him that I loved him. And I asked him, please don't do this again, because you know how much it hurts me. And I reminded him, though, in that moment, that even if he does it again, I don't want him to be afraid of of coming to me with his mistakes and the bad things that he's done. That those are not going to make me hate him. That I would not stop loving him. That nothing would be able to break that love for him. And in this system of the sacrifice that God gives, in his sacrifice for us at the cross, God is communicating that exact truth to his church. There is nothing that would make him stop loving you, that he is always fighting for reconciliation and restoration, that there is always going to be a way back. Let's pray.
Father God, we confess that honestly a lot of times when we think of sacrifices and offerings, we don't always think of grace. That we do view them as rules. We view them as punishments to us and Lord, we pray that as we um, look at the way that you are so committed to drawing your people near to you again, no matter what sort of a mess we have made of ourselves and of our world, God, that you don't stop loving us. You don't stop caring for us. Then you make a way for us to be reconciled with you. God, we thank you that you are a God who doesn't give us a set of rules and then sit back and wait for us to do our part, but Lord, that you are a God who runs to your people. Father, for some of us, I expect that we need you to run to us today. We need to know that you are running and chasing after us today. Father, would you remind us of your great love for us? As we head into this Passion Week, and as we remember your journey to the cross, as we remember the lengths that you would go to to reconcile this broken church to you. Lord, we pray that it would lead us to praise and worship and adoration of thankfulness, of, of response, of love toward you, of just an awe and a wonder at the goodness and the mercy and the grace of our God. Father, we pray that you would help us to hear and to, to, to be reminded that you are um, your heart breaks so much over over the wrongs that we have done and we continue to do. And that you're always committed to drawing us back, Lord. Lord, we pray that your spirit would, would communicate that truth deeply into each and every one of our hearts today. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for um, your great love for us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name.